0: This is just a quick disclaimer. We're back in Greek mythology this week, so it gets pretty dark. There's murder, betrayal, and the briefest mention of sexual assault, but nothing explicit. Please check out the post on MythPodcast.com for more info. This week on Myths and Legends, we're continuing our stories from the Trojan War with what happened to Agamemnon when he came home. The members of his family meet the new wife, same as the old wife, and that they are both still alive and hate him relentlessly for forcing them into marriage. This homecoming should go well. For the creature this week, the solution might actually be worse than the problem. And that's saying something, because the problem is a man-eating ox horse who is as creative as he is gross. This is Myths and Legends, Episode 187, The End to All Our Pain. This is a podcast where I tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you'd think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. Previously on the podcast, the Greeks won the Trojan War. Yay. And murdered slash burned slash enslaved an entire city. Not so yay. We'll be focusing on Agamemnon this week and what happened for him. If you don't remember, he was the commander in chief of the Greek forces the king of kings who butted heads with Achilles. Well, he conquered Troy and captured Cassandra, one of the daughters of Priam, the guess now former king of Troy. The story calls her a concubine, though that's not really the right term. This captive woman forced to share the bed of a warlord, also had the gift of prophecy, but with a fun twist. You see, Cassandra had a rough life. When Apollo was trying to take advantage of her, he gave her that ability to see the future. When she continued to resist him, he gave up. And since he couldn't take the gift back, he made it so that no matter what she said, no one would believe her prophecies. Anyway, back in Mycenae, in Greece, we last left Clytemnestra, the queen and wife of Agamemnon, when Agamemnon sacrificed their daughter so that the Greeks could get a favorable wind to sail east. She was not happy about this, and 10 years alone to think about how much you hate your husband, Well. That will make for an interesting return. Oh, and one quick note. I've had Agamemnon as the king of Mycenae, and he absolutely is in the earliest tellings of the stories. Somewhere along the line, it switches to Argos. We're going to keep it at Mycenae just for clarity and consistency, but just know that in the original version of the story, it was Argos. We won't start at the present day in our story, though, but we'll take a brief detour about eight years back and meet two more children of Clytemnestra and Agamemnon, their daughter, Electra, and son, Orestes. Electra didn't have time to weep. Their sister was dead. Clytemnestra had taken their older sister, Iphigenia, east, and word came back that she had been murdered by their parents. Sacrificed, so that they could make the wind blow. Now, there was another visitor in Mycenae, their mother's lover. The man Agamemnon had deposed, when he took back his father's throne. Electra was barely older than 12, but she knew what came next. The man had been watching the toddler, Agamemnon's only son and heir. If things went poorly in Troy, then Orestes would be king. That is, unless something happened to him. Electra had grown up in the palace. She knew its hidden places, she heard all of its whispers. Unless she did something, Orestes wouldn't live to see his third birthday. That night, after the nurse had put them to bed, she rose. She pulled her pack from underneath her bed and found her cloak. She found a sling too. Orestes was old enough to walk, but only so far they would need to put a lot of distance between themselves and Mycenae before dawn. She scooped Rusty's from his bed, and put the sleeping toddler in the sling. It was heavy for a child her size, but she had to endure. She had to do this for him. Electra turned the corner, and found herself looking up at her nurse. She had been caught. The nurse looked at the girl with the toddler and a sling, and nodded. They needed to stay off the roads people will be looking for them, at least for a few days. Go north. There was a king, Strophius. He was their uncle on her father's side. Her father's sister's brother, to be exact, but let's not get into family trees now. He would keep them safe, hide them. She was a smart girl, and she was doing the right thing. If Orestes stayed here, he was dead. But out there, he stood a chance. Go. Now. So, with the help of their nurse... Electra fled in the night, with Orestes strapped to her chest. She didn't know what dangers awaited them on the road, but she was well aware of those that lurked in the palace. They would take their chances in the wild. Nearly ten years later, some watched the land others the sea. For the watcher that crouched on the roof of Agamemnon's palace in Mycenae, there was only one thing he watched. The beacons. The last in a long chain of beacons that had been placed between Greece and Troy. When the war ended, if the war ended, they would be lit to announce to the city that the return of the king was at hand. See what I did there? The watchman groaned as he shifted. He was too old for this. They were all too old for this. They were all that was left though, them and the children. Everyone else had gone to war. The watchman didn't hold out hope. You couldn't light beacons if you were dead. And 10 years on, was there really any other outcome? The watchman could dream though, because with Agamemnon gone, she was in charge. Something had changed in her when she returned from Ullis she returned without Iphigenia, her daughter. And it was only later that the people learned the truth. Agamemnon had sacrificed her to get a favorable wind so the Greeks could sail to Troy. Things changed quickly after that. It was a bloodless coup. Agamemnon had left a steward in charge, of course, and the man wasn't stupid, just not as smart as Clytemnestra, a princess of Sparta, queen of Mycenae, She moved quickly and paid off the guards in the city and then made overtures to the nobles and their men. Before the steward even knew what was happening, Clytemnestra was in control. And that's why the watchman sat up at night. That's why he watched the beacons. Partially because it was his job, but partially because it gave him hope. If they still paid him to do this, then there was hope that his rapist War criminal king was coming home to save them from this powerful, capable female ruler. If he hadn't been watching, he might have thought of it as a star. But after over a year on the roof, he knew all the stars. Somewhere, off in the darkened hills, a twinkling began. He sat up. He dared to hope. Then, another. Finally, Shouts came from the watchtower closest to Mycenae. The blaze went up. The beacons were lit. He took his torch and lowered it onto the wood. Slowly, the fire rose. It told the city. It told Clytemnestra that he was coming. The war was over. Agamemnon was returning home. <laughs> torches. Torches around the city were alight. A cry went up from the street. It just this roused from sleep, but Clytemnestra put her hand on his chest and kissed his shoulder, telling him to go back to sleep. It was nothing. He rolled over, and Clytemnestra rose from bed, wrapping herself, and going to the window. The wind blew. The sea churned. The sea that was carrying her husband home. They both had stayed that day. They both stayed to watch her die. Their daughter, she submitted to stop a battle among the warriors, to secure safe passage for Greece. She was stoic in her choice, but Clytemnestra, held back by her husband's warriors, would never forget the look in her eye as death came for her. She would never forgive Agamemnon for that. That day was the first day of the rest of her life. From that moment on, she realized that no one but her, not even the man she married, her king, would look out for her best interest. She returned home quickly and consumed the steward. Mycenae was hers. Then, Aegisthus arrived. He was Agamemnon's cousin. The man who Agamemnon and Menelaus had driven from the city when they married into the Spartan royal family and came back with an army. He arrived finding not a steward who would warily keep him under house arrest, but a queen who would invite him into her bed. She didn't try to hide it. She was certain Agamemnon wasn't trying to hide his. Still, no one talked about it in her presence. That was true power, that the people who hated you had to smile to your face. The shouts in the streets though, he was returning, Agamemnon was coming home. He was coming back to take what was his. Clytemnestra smiled. But what he thought was his wasn't his anymore. The kingdom, the throne, they were hers. He had taken so much from her. That all ended the day he had Iphigenia murdered. He would never take anything else. Yes, he was returning. But he had sent word ahead. He was coming home, but she would be ready. We'll see Clytemnestra's plan come to fruition, but that will be right after this. Fire, fire and blood. Clytemnestra had to dream that night, a dream of a city on fire, of men pouring in through open gates, of ten years of pent-up frustration and rage breaking loose and satisfying itself on the worst of human atrocity, and Agamemnon was its author. She smiled as she told the leaders of the city the next day, first of the beacons and then the dream. Their king was coming home, the relief was palpable. The men, the play says, were moved to tears. She smiled. The Greeks near Troy were sleeping their first good night in years, dividing the spoils and the houses of their enemies. She just hoped they stayed away from the city gods, that they honored what needed to be honored, lest they meet with misfortune on their return. The old men, the city leaders, looked at each other was Was that it? Was this the meeting, or is this just a sinister pregnant pause? Both? Both cool. The heralds arrived not long after. The boats had been racing the beacons home, but the herald breathed deep when he landed in Greece, never dreaming that he would die in the land of his fathers after so much war. He heard what had happened in Agamemnon's absence. Well, they should worry no more. Agamemnon, lord of men, was coming to bring a light in the darkness. Clytemnestra gave the herald a royal welcome. Begging to hear all about Troy, and if you ever decide to read the play Agamemnon, on which the story is based, the first third is just a recap of all the stuff that happened at Troy. It's well written, definitely. But seeing as we just spent like four and a half hours going over that, we'll just skip it here. Anyway, Clytemnestra was much more interested in the end of the war. The very end of the war, where the men were coming home, Were Menelaus and Helen returning to Mycenae with her husband? The herald hung his head. Menelaus. He and Helen were feared lost, along with all of the Spartan ships. After they left Troy, a massive storm hit the ships returning home to Greece. Agamemnon sailed through. But when the storm cleared days later, Menelaus, Odysseus, Diomedes, and others were gone. Clytemnestra was too good at this to smile. She said that she would pray for her brother-in-law, the king of Sparta. Ah, so sad. Agamemnon was so much safer with his brother around. Then, shouts went up from the outskirts of the city. Clytemnestra only beamed and wept for joy. Her husband and her king was home. Agamemnon thundered out of the chariot, breathed deep, and gestured to the city of Argos. Wait, did he say Argos? He meant Mycenae. Ah, it doesn't matter. He was home. There were times in which he thought he would never see this place again, that he would die on the plains outside of Troy, or grow old in a tent, waiting for a victory that was never to be. But the gods had given him victory, and the gods had given him back his kingdom. It seemed that he had finally overcome the curse, outran the sins of his father, His chief noble found him amongst the cheering crowds as he walked toward the crimson tapestries, the ones that had been laid in honor for him, the king, to walk up to the palace. The foot that had stamped out Troy should never touch the earth again. Agamemnon sneered at the red. Was he a god? No. Then his feet could touch the ground. Count no one blessed until they end their life in peace. The noble, the advisor, praised Agamemnon, saying that he always knew his king would return. The noble knew that all the men who had sailed for Troy were brave and honorable, but the king should search and learn at last who stayed home and kept the faith, and who has betrayed their city. Agamemnon nodded to one of his chief advisors and slapped him on the back. He was Agamemnon. He found Troy, took his pickaxe to it, broke it, and churned the land, so nothing would exist there again. For the kidnapping of one woman, he broke and raped a city, which, yes, also meant plundered in those times, but really? If there was sedition in Mycenae, he would root it out and kill it just like he killed so many Trojans. Did he mention he killed a lot of Trojans? The noble side. So, is this going to be a thing then? Constantly referencing the Trojan War? <laughs> Agamemnon nodded. Uh, yeah, basically for the rest of forever in European literature, it was awesome. Now, it's time for Agamemnon's second act. He grinned. Clytemnestra, I haven't seen you since... Oh, yeah, let's not dwell on the past. Honey, baby, I've missed you so much. Meet my mistress. Clytemnestra stood there, frozen for only a second... Then, she smiled. Agamemnon stepped aside to reveal Cassandra, daughter of Priam, the chief among his spoils from the sacked city. Clytemnestra nodded to her husband. He was home. The king was in his castle. His return was like a spring after a long winter. He was Zeus when Zeus tramples virgin grapes to make wine for himself. Agamemnon nodded. Felt like there's some subtext there, but the good thing about being a warlord? You don't need to understand subtext. He departed, leaving Cassandra standing there. The young woman shirked back into the chariot. This was it. This was the home of the people who burned her city and killed her family. She saw their eyes. She heard the things they said about her. She didn't want to be here any more than they wanted her here. Most days she wished she was with her family, and Hades, but that would simply be fighting fate. Like Agamemnon had said on the day he committed the act that would lead to his downfall, fate proceeds. It is unrelenting and indifferent, and it's coming for all of us. Cassandra was a prophet, she saw this moment, In all of the following moments, the instant Apollo gave her his gift. This curse. To know the future definitely, was to be trapped by it definitely. The nets of doom. There was but one way forward. She saw Clytemnestra approaching. Now, a conversation about slaves and gratitude. Fate proceeds. She turned and Clytemnestra strode over to Cassandra. In Cassandra's youth, when she still saw things imperfectly, this conversation had confused her. She was informed that she was a slave. She was the daughter of a king. How could she be a slave? But the queen said that she was the slave of a great man. She would be treated with all the honor custom provides. Cassandra was in this moment, and every moment before and after. The queen said "Was saying was going to say that Cassandra was a filly fresh cot. She must learn to take the bridle before she works herself up to the point that she dies. She dies. The house, the palace, it was here. Cassandra was here. All these years she told herself she was okay with this. Everyone died. This was how she died. Now, she was standing before the doorway. Fate proceeds. Agamemnon's chief advisor rushed over to the woman, trying to scramble back into the chariot, trying to spur the horses, the horses that had already been let off and stabled. She was shrieking now, shrieking to Apollo who had ruined her once to ruin her again. This house hates the gods. It was an echoing womb of guilt. Kinsmen tortured kinsmen. A slaughterhouse of heroes, the soil reeked of blood. The advisor nodded. Well, she wasn't wrong. Still, they had to get her inside. She was drawing the attention of the crowd, the crowd that had dissipated when Agamemnon walked inside. A plot. Cassandra screamed about a plot, a growing, massive thing inside the house. It would crush them. There was no cure for it. Help was too far off. The minister shrugged. I mean, this was an inscrutable riddle, despite him warning the king of such a thing not ten minutes ago. Cassandra screamed on, bedmate, deathmate, Separate the great bull from his mate. She traps him writhing. A horn twists. She gores him through. There is murder in the cauldron. Do you hear? The advisor shook his head. The, okay, so the bulls are cooking murder? Are they still in bed? I, I'm not following. Just then, Cassandra became still. She looked up at the house. At the palace. The furies. They cling to this place. They feed on generations. They sing the song of a man trampling his brother's bed, of another eating his own children. The advisor swallowed. She was born in another land. How did she know these things? Only a few knew the curse of the house of Atreus. She said that she wrestled with gods and resisted. She won and lost. Now, here she was, a prophet no one believed. I believe you, the advisor replied, and stepped forward. Cassandra looked at him. You will see Agamemnon dead, murdered in his own house, she said, and then waited. I don't believe you, the advisor shook his head. Cassandra nodded. That's what she thought. She tried to tell Troy, too. They spat on her in the streets, calling her a witch, screeching at her to starve for bread in hell they didn't believe her they didn't want to believe her at the end of the day was there any difference she took a deep breath and she approached the doors it was a slaughterhouse it breathed murder the only solace she could take was that woman for woman she would be avenged she had seen that far past herself fortune was like that When all was well, a shadow could overturn it. The stroke of a wet sponge, and the picture is blotted out. So, too, are the fates of people. Cassandra went through the door. Agamemnon relaxed by his hearth. A long trip, a long, long trip. But he was home. They had done everything they set out to do. He had avenged the mark against his brother's honor. They had razed the city and retrieved Helen. And he came home. His name would live on forever because of this. He breathed a long, contented breath of someone who could finally rest. Agamemnon never saw the blow that would kill him. Clytemnestra was standing behind him, arms around her husband. He glanced around his shoulder. Where was Cassandra? She stepped back and sighed. She said that this was for Iphigenia. Agamemnon cocked an eyebrow and started to turn around. Iphigenia? He didn't hear the dagger, the one that slipped in behind him. He didn't even feel it, not fully at first. He simply looked down at the dagger sticking out of his chest. His own blood seemingly caught unaware. It was a few seconds before it started soaking through his tunic. She was our daughter, our child, and you killed her. She was little more than an animal to you, and for what? to charm the winds of Thrace, you could leave me for a decade to fight your pointless war. You should have been hunted down for your crime. Yet, you're praised. Well, here's my sacrifice. She stabbed him again, and then waited for him to stagger and turn around. She wanted to watch this. She had been waiting for years to watch this. Agamemnon gasped, or tried to gasp, The dagger had likely found his lungs, if it had missed his heart. His robe was crimson now. He tried to grapple with the brutal irony of all this. He spent ten years fighting. He had been overwhelmed and outnumbered. He had weathered the rage of Achilles, and yet it was here, in his own home, that death finally came for him. He turned and looked at his wife. There was still enough fight left in him for one more thing. She stepped back and he felt the sheet wrap around his neck, the one held by the man who had taken his place, Aegisthus. Clytemnestra picked up the knife. One final blow. Agamemnon screamed out as this one found his heart. And the great king, the breaker of Troy, died. Footsteps came in from another room and Clytemnestra turned was it done? The warrior nodded and stepped aside, revealing another, carrying the body of Cassandra. Clytemnestra waved to Justus, Pick him up. Get them both outside. Here they come. Upon hearing the cries of the king, the warriors met Clytemnestra and her lover outside. They stood frozen by what they saw. What have you done? The lead noble asked. Clytemnestra looked around her. to her own men, armed and ready for a fight. She, wait, was that rhetorical? The king was dead from multiple stab wounds. She was covered in his blood and holding a knife. I mean, really? So you confess, the noble said, and nodded to the armed men at their side. Clytemnestra's own men stepped forward. I confess. Here is my husband made a corpse. I'm not some desperate woman. My heart is steel. I did it with my own hand. Justice for Iphigenia has been done. The nobles shifted awkwardly. Yeah, where were the charges against him for human sacrifice? Didn't the law demand that you banish him for what he did to his own daughter? Like, yeah, Greek mythology is dark, but even we draw the line at human sacrifice most times. "'He murdered his own child, and you all clap for him "'because he burned a city to the ground on the edge of the world? "'So go ahead. Charge me. Threaten me. "'I'll meet you blow for blow, and if I fall, the throne is yours. "'If God decrees the reverse, late as it is, old men, you'll learn your place.'" She said that word had come that Menelaus' ship had been lost. The curse of the house of Atreus was over drained to the lees. Agisthus stepped forward. Mycenae was his again. The old men laughed. The people would never follow him and Clytemnestra. Agisthus said that the people would follow whoever they told them to follow. And the nobles, well, they would learn how chains and hunger could be used to change minds. The more they fought, the more they would suffer. The nobles picked up their walking sticks and ordered their own warriors forward. But they stayed where they were. Clytemnestra nodded. Yep, they were hers too. You see, when they left for Troy, what these men were five, eight years old. Clytemnestra was the only royalty they ever knew. She was all they were loyal to, not some king. The nobles advanced though, saying that they would fight to the last man for their king. Clytemnestra stepped into the group that was to become a massacre, addressing the fathers of Mycenae, she said, striking a more conciliatory tone. They spat curses, telling Clytemnestra and Agisthus and to get their fill while they could. Orestes would return. Agisthus laughed and relaxed his weapon. Oh, okay, yeah, they didn't have a leg to stand on, did they? If they were rallying behind what a what would he be now? Thirteen years old? A thirteen-year-old coming back from the dead and being their champion. He and Elektra had been found almost a decade ago, mauled beyond recognition not a day from the city. By their own nurse, too. <sighs> too bad, too. He would have made a great king. Bummer. Clytemnestra put her arms around it, just this. Let them howl. They're just impotent old men. You and I have the power now. We will set this house in order, once and for all. With that, Clytemnestra took Aegisthus' hand, and the two simply walked away from the shocked nobles, shutting the door of the palace behind them. The nobles shouted curses at them, this wasn't over. But it pretty clearly was. Clytemnestra was right. She and Aegisthus they had the power now. The old men could howl. They could sing songs of a rightful king returning to Mycenae to avenge his father and strike down the evil queen. But no king was coming. They were alone. And Clytemnestra was in control. So this was one of the first Greek plays that I read. And it's honestly what made me fall in love with these stories. And knowing more of the mythology behind it, I love when actions have consequences in a story. I love that it was the death of Iphigenia, a development that's more of a footnote on a lot of tellings of the Trojan War. That that is what led to Agamemnon's death. Clytemnestra is 100% understandable in her motivations. It's a violent time, and she's married to a violent man who has pretty much completely replaced her with his slave princess. She doesn't just lie down and die. Combine that with the fact that, according to Clytemnestra's citation in the play, Agamemnon engaged in illegal human sacrifice, a crime that Clytemnestra, as queen, was simply taking vengeance for, when the society at large refused to charge him. Maybe this is why Clytemnestra could simply execute the king, and then walk away. And she could. There will be no retribution for her or Agisthus from among the nobles in the palace. And whether the men who returned with Agamemnon from Troy were outraged or not, I can't imagine them wanting to jump into a civil war on behalf of a king who was already dead. It was outrageous, but they had done enough. They had seen enough. If Clytemnestra and Aegisthus wanted a chair, they could have it as long as the people were allowed to live out their lives in peace for the first time in a generation, they didn't care who sat on the throne. Also, Clytemnestra and Aegisthus controlled the army, and even though Clytemnestra seems calm and calculating, Aegisthus seems thoroughly unhinged in this play, and I would not put it past him to silent dissent with the sword. Still, they might be under the impression that they had thought of everything, but they were wrong. Electra and her brother, Orestes, weren't dead, and not today or tomorrow or even in the next few years, but the time would come when he would return to the city, his throne, in a conflict that would pit parent against child and draw the attention of the gods themselves. The creature this time is the Sinangbi from Madagascar the Songombi, is a carnivorous ox-horse hybrid. And if you're thinking, well, that's not cool, seeing as those animals are really strong and usually not carnivorous unless you're Hercules on a road trip, well, they're also apparently addicted to human flesh. It tries to wing you over with its spots and its long dopey ears that get in its way when it runs, but don't let it fool you. It just wants its next fix. Thought to have been brought to Madagascar by travelers, the human flesh-addicted superhorse will chase you through the forest, if you manage to avoid this incredibly fast creature, one that's so fast that it said that it catches its prey, quote, instantly, if you manage to avoid it, the only way to stay away is by climbing a tree. You might think, hey, horse oxen can't climb trees. And you'd be right. I hope you're patient, though, because the song is. It'll wait, and then it won't. I don't know how long it takes for a carnivorous horse oxen to lose patience, but boy, does it lose patience it knows that it can't take that tree down. And seeing as it has cloven hooves, it can't pick up anything to throw at you, but it does have something else. The sungombi will proceed to urinate up the tree, soaking its victim in an attempt to either get them to slip or decide that being a meal for the sungombi is preferable to any more urine. There are ways to stop the sungombi. First, you have to get a child. Then, get a pot with breathing holes a locking lid because that child is not going to want to stay in there. Then, take some string and dangle that child that's trapped in a pot over the mouth of a cave where the songambi is thought to live. The very real cries of the terrified child will draw the creature out of the cave, so you can fight it. Yes, this horrifying remedy that's actually put out as a way to lure the songambi ends with you fighting it, a monster weighing a few thousand pounds addicted to human flesh. Seems like a great idea. I say, forego the child abuse, monster fights, and urine soaking, and just probably stay out of the thing's way. That's it for this week. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. Our theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to even more music in the show notes. I want to say thanks again to SimplySafe for sponsoring us this week. Simply Safe is the home security for right now. When feeling safe at home has never been more important. Simply Safe was designed to be easy to use while protecting your whole home 24-7, starting at 50 cents a day. Order online easily, open the box, place the sensors, plug it in, and your home is protected around the clock. And no technician has to come to your house. Head to simplysafe.com/slash legends and get free shipping and a 60-day money-back guarantee. That's SimplySafe.com. Slash Legends. All right, thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.